Uh, would you please open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 17, Psalm 17. Um, over the past about four years, I've been preaching through the, through the Psalms as opportunity arises, and each of these Psalms has been good and beneficial to study and to preach, um, but this one is the first one that is explicitly labeled a prayer, a prayer of David. The Lord is kind to give us inspired words to pray back to him in every situation in life, but especially in times of pain and trouble. This prayer, as, as are many of the Psalms, is a cry for help in the midst of oppression and opposition and trouble, but not trouble without hope. Our hope is not in our ability to pray perfect words, but that we pray to a perfect, righteous, powerful God. So as you are able, please stand out of respect for the word of God one more time as we read Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. <coughs> Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who would do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your perfect word given to us. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us in this book. We thank you that it is trustworthy and true. We thank you that you have given us words to pray when we are in trouble and don't know where to turn or what to say. Help us this morning as we look at this text. Help us to see what is there and what it means. Help us to take what it means and be moved into action. Some of us are weak and weary. We are beaten down by the world and dare not look up for fear of being kicked again. Others, others are, are proud and need to be humbled by the word of your truth. We ask that your, by your word, your word would do, it, do its work in us by your spirit this morning. Strengthen the weak. Give grace to the humble. Cause the weary to find fresh joy in you and your goodness. Humble the proud. Convict us of sin. Cause us to turn to Christ again. Make us all joyful to hear your word this morning. Strengthen me as I preach. May I preach only what is true and good. Guard my tongue that I may not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I've mentioned, this is the first explicit prayer in the Psalms. They're, they're all prayers, but... This one is labeled 
as such. And so I think it carries some weight with how our prayers should be shaped, especially our prayers in time of trouble. I don't mean every single prayer, but we can and should look to the men of God in Scripture as an example to follow when we see them doing good and right things. These inspired words can help us to shape our cries to the Lord when we are being pressed in on all sides. This prayer of David is urgent and insistent. He pleads his case before the Lord in a way that is unfamiliar to us, at least to me. There's an instinct in me that wants to be modest and humble and reserved. I never want to impose on anyone. I don't want to be a bother. This at times carries over into prayer. And this may be a polite Midwestern impulse. More likely it's pride. Maybe I would rather suffer and do something myself than ask for help. Whatever it is, it is not a biblical understanding of God our Father and how we ought to pray. When my dad was alive, I called him all the time, asking questions about everything. Whenever something around the house or barn broke, be it animal or mechanical, I didn't Google it, I, I called dad. Google doesn't have categories for what to do when your tractor from 1963 breaks. <laughs> or, or how long to let fresh concrete set before you can put your 4-H birds on it. Or a hundred other things. I mean, I suppose it might, but it definitely takes less time to just call dad. It was like a reflex. I'm in trouble, I'll call him. Yeah, I, I, I never, I knew he knew the answer. It didn't matter what it was. It was crazy. And when I did this, I never felt like I was imposing on him. I delighted in talking to him. I took what he had to say about whatever I was asking with both joy and seriousness. Joy because now I knew what to do. And seriousness because now I needed to do what he told me to. This response to trouble is so hardwired in me that even still, when I run into trouble, I reach for the phone before I realize what I'm doing. Why don't I pray like this? Why is my first instinct when I meet other trouble to try and gut it out, to grind through it, instead of unhesitatingly coming to the Lord in prayer in the way that David does here. We have in God, our Father, what we have there is is much better than what I had with my dad. The Lord is not far off. He does not sleep. He will not leave us. He will not let the phone ring and go to voicemail. And yet so often, for one reason or another, we do not make use of one of the greatest benefits of our salvation in Christ, that of calling out to God and expecting an answer. And I don't mean expecting an answer in the way that those con men and wicked false teachers say that when we demand things from God, he must give us into what we demand like a bad father giving into a spoiled child. I do mean that we can call out to the Lord in the way that David does here, in the way that other godly men in scripture do, and expect him to hear us and then to act and give us what we need. We should ask the Lord to give us what we need with a clear conscience. He delights to give to his children. And yet so often, as James will say later in in James 2, you do not have because you do not ask. In Psalm 17, we see David beat on the gates of grace with both hands, calling out for the Lord to hear him. And as we'll see, for the Lord to hear him is for the Lord to act. We see David praying boldly because he grounds his prayer in the steadfast covenant love of God. And we should take notice of the way he prays here. He does not come to the Lord sheepishly or timidly, worried that he's interrupting, not wanting to cause any trouble, not wanting to impose. No, David prays 
boldly, confidently, sure that God is there, that he cares, and that he can do something. We have a lot to learn from David in this psalm about how to pray. How to, as a letter to the Hebrews says, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. David pleads his case. He calls for justice against his wicked oppressors, knowing that the Lord is a good and righteous judge and a gracious and caring God. The structure of this psalm, as David comparing himself to his enemies and comparing the way the Lord deals with his people and the way that he deals with those who were set against his people. So let's look to verses one and two. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my lips, to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. We don't know at what point in his life David was when he wrote this psalm. We don't know where the attacks were coming from. But it, it appears that he's being slandered and lied, lied about. It seems as though his enemies are out to do him real damage, either physically or, or, or in the eyes of the people he leads. It may be Saul and his allies out to kill David, knowing that the Lord has promised him the throne. Or it may be one of his sons and their traitorous allies out to take the throne from him. Or it may be another time in David's life that we don't know about from Scripture that has David in a corner with his enemies surrounding him and closing in. What we do know is his response. His gut instinct is to turn to the Lord. And as I've said in almost every sermon on the Psalms, is, is that under pressure here, we see what David is made of. It's been said that what we do when no one is watching is who we are. The same could be said of what happens when we are put under pressure. It is easy to put on a happy face and go about praising God with our lips when times are easy. But what we do when it gets hard reveals what we think about God. And here David's instinct is to pray. The pressure is mounting and he turns not to the strength in his sword arm, but to the Lord. His first move is toward God, toward the one who can really do something to, in his situation. Hear me, hear a just cause. Listen, O Lord, make things right here. Fix it, I cannot, but you can. David cries out about the injustice he is facing. His cause is right and he knows it. He also knows that the Lord will not ultimately let his people fall. His love will not fail. That does not mean that there will be no trouble. Obviously, David is in trouble right now. But it does mean that David knows that the Lord of all the earth will do what is right and just. When there is injustice, the Lord cares about it. He cares that you've been attacked for the sake of his name. He cares that you've been persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So David calls out to the Lord for vindication, for a righteous judgment between him and his enemies. He's not looking to get even. He wants justice, but he wants justice at God's hand, not his own. He pleads that his cause is just and right and asks for the Lord to answer him according to his justice, because he is innocent in this matter. But in order for David to be in the right, he must be in the right. In order for David to appeal to the Lord based on his innocence, he must be innocent. When Jesus said, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you, 
He expected the evil things said about you to be false, which is what David is about to argue as he presents before the Lord. I am innocent. I'm going to argue my innocence. But argue? Present a case? That sounds strange to our ears. To present our case before the Lord as an argument, something carefully thought out and reasoned, to our modern sensibilities, it sounds wrong. Partly because we modern people do not generally, generally use well-thought-out arguments for anything. Our idea of a debate... Our idea of a debate is to insult the other person and call it a win. And partly because the idea of argument just sounds wrong. Why do I need to present a case before the Lord? Is he ignorant of what I need? Does he need to be persuaded to listen and answer us? The answer to both of these questions is of course not. But that has not kept preachers throughout the history of the church from urging their people to pray carefully in this way. Spurgeon did this. He said of David, David would not have been a man after God's own heart if he had not been a man of prayer. He was a master in the sacred art of supplication. He does not merely ask for what he wants or needs. He argues his case, explaining to God why God should answer. There are two major benefits to praying in this way. First, it forces us to carefully think through what we are asking and sharpen our requests. And second, it, it forces us to examine ourselves as we ask. Let's look to David's argument in verses 3 through 5. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast, fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. These are bold words from the mouth of David. He is declaring his innocence before God in no uncertain terms. He is not timidly asking the Lord to look upon him with favor. He is calling out to his God to make things right. Verse 3 should remind us of Job at his best, blameless before God, not sinless, not perfect, but living a life that was pleasing in God's sight. The Lord, the Lord said of Job in Job 1, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And he said of David that David is a man after his own heart. In this psalm, we see that David has examined himself in the way that Paul will, would encourage the Corinthian church before they take the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Let each, let each person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It is a serious thing to take the Lord's Supper. And it is a serious thing to come before the Lord in prayer. We who, are, we who are in Christ should not fear to pray. We are called to pray. But when we pray, we should not pray flippantly with shallow words and careless thoughts. David comes before the Lord saying, you have seen me. You have seen me in the dark, in the quiet, in the private. You know my heart and you know it is pure. This is a terrifying prayer. Who can pray like this and have it be true? Who can pray and not like, like this, like David? I am innocent and not be lying through his teeth. Only those in Christ. Only those who are completely hidden in him and are walking according to his will. We can only pray this prayer if we have already been made, as, made clean by the Lord himself. As David asked the Lord to do in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me 
thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David has examined, examined himself before the Lord and is praying in earnest. He's also setting up a contrast between himself and his enemies. He is seeking to be a Psalm 1 man, one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. David has determined to not sin with his lips or walk in the way of the wicked because he delights in the law of the Lord. Whatever others did to provoke him, he was restrained by the word of God. Can you imagine being that marinated in God's word that whatever the wicked do to you, you can say with David, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Often when we are attacked, our instinct is to fight back right away. On our own, we never really grow out of the he hit me, I'm kicking him mentality of young children. But this is something that God's people must do. We must learn from David and meditate on the word of God to keep our eyes so fixed on it that not only will we not stray into the paths of the wicked and violent, but we will be trained in patience by his promises. The Lord is on our side. He will make all things right. Vengeance is his. He will repay which is why David could ask that the Lord make things right, back in verse 2. The wicked, on the other hand, hate God. They hate God, they hate his word, and they hate his people. They are quick to do evil. They are quick to turn to violence, either to get their way in the beginning or get their revenge in the end. They sin with their lips and with their lives. And it turns out that, that the first sin leads to the second. Jesus said in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. This is the outworking we see in this psalm. Those who set themselves up against God's people first do so with their words. Actions soon follow because what is in the heart cannot be hidden, which is why we so desperately need a new heart. David has been given a, a new heart and has remained faithful. He has not gone after the wicked, but is in the midst of being attacked by them. So he calls out again, renewing his prayer with urgency. David here is not repeating himself like the pagans. He is not praying empty words. He is calling to the Lord, his Lord, to answer him. Spurgeon says this is like the repeated blow of a hammer hitting the same nail on the head to fix it more effectually. So in verse 6, David says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David calls out to the Lord with the confidence of someone who has called out and been answered before. I call upon you, for you will answer me. David knows the faithfulness that God has shown in the past, and he trusts that the Lord will be faithful both now and in the future. We have seen this prayer before in Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, along with others. David is in trouble, and he calls out to the Lord for help, and then he's delivered. David goes back again, knowing that the Lord, his Lord, will answer him in the way that he most needs. This is why he keeps coming back. But why did David come in the first place? Why did he think he, he could go to the Lord in his time of trouble at all? It was because of verse 7. This is the center of the psalm in every way. It is in the middle. It is also the heart of the prayer. It is the foundation that everything else is built on. Wondrously show your steadfast love. This is the, the, the covenant love of God that has said that the settled, sure, choosing love of the Lord for his people. This is why David can pray. 
This is why he is not among the wicked. It is what sets him and us apart from the violent God-haters. It is God's steadfast, immovable love that gave David a new heart. It is this love that makes us new in Christ. It is this love that makes God the Savior of those who seek refuge in him. This title, Savior, for God is relatively uncommon in the Old Testament and almost always points back to the Exodus. The most significant action of the Lord for his people in the Old Testament is the Exodus. This was the touchstone for God's people. Looking back to the Exodus reminded the people of God that God does move, that he does save. And here in Psalm 17, we see the echoes of this language that David, in, in the language that David uses. It is more apparent in, the, in, in Hebrew, but it, there's a direct parallel between what we have here in, in Psalm 17 and what the, we see in the Psalm of Moses right after the Exodus. David is calling back to the covenant love of God, the outworking of his faithfulness in the past and expecting God to keep his covenant in the present. And because God is unchanging, we have that hope too. But we have it better than David. He was looking back to the Exodus. We can look back to the cross. We can look back to the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection and know for sure that the Lord is on the side of his people. He has acted to save his people. And his people will be saved in the end, come what may. Evil will rise up against God's people. The violent will oppress them and God will save his people. We can know these things without a doubt. God is kind and gracious and will give his people refuge in the way that matters most. David asks for this protection in the next few verses. Verses 8 and 9. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from those who would do me violence, from my deadly enemies who surround me. Keep me as the apple of your eye. That is, protect me in the same way you protect your eyes. The eyes are one of the most sensitive and vulnerable parts of your body. We are hardwired to protect our eyes. God has designed our faces with bones and brows and lids and lashes to protect our windows on the world. Sometimes, though, these are not enough. Sometimes you're doing something like changing a headlight bulb. (laughs) And everything goes wrong and you end up with a scar across the apple of your eye. Those of us who know what it is like to have the defenses of your eye breached know how valuable having eye protection is. David is asking the Lord to protect him the way I should have protected my eyes. He is asking the Lord to hide him from danger. The danger that is very real. There are men who really want David dead. Men with real weapons who really want to find David and end his life. David was a warrior. Someone who knew how to fight. He was not cowering. He was not heartless. But he did understand the danger he was facing. And he knew the best defense was not the strength of his own right arm, but the Lord's. After asking for protection, David goes on to describe the wicked men who are after him. This is in in contrast to his own righteousness we saw in verses 3 through 5. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have surrounded our steps. They set our eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a a young lion lurking in ambush. The wicked who are after David have closed their hearts to pity, and they speak arrogantly. This is in contrast to David whose heart has been tried and tested and found pure, and David who has purposed with his mouth not to transgress. These men have set themselves up against God and against his people. They are the photo-negative of the godly. 
They have no moral compass. They take what they want from whom they want and have nothing holding them back. We still see men like this today. Those who attack others for, without reason or restraint for the 12 bucks in their wallet or the sheer thrill of it. Those who de- desire to devour children and so put all kinds of evil in front of them as often as they can. They are beastly. And the Lord has left them to, their, to themselves. This is a picture of unrestrained sin, of the reins of restraining grace being cut, and it leads to, to destruction for everyone around them, and in the end, for themselves. Because the Lord will confront them. He will, let the, he will not let them go unpunished and unchecked forever. David knows this. He knows that the Lord will protect his own. He knows that the Lord hates the wicked and their works. So he asks for help. He asks for both deliverance and justice. James Montgomery Boyce says that this is a sound basis for a prayer appeal. If we know that we really are gods and are serving him, when under attack, it is right to pray, Lord, your property is in danger. We are never on such strong ground as when we pray that God's property and work are in danger and that we need his deliverance, which is just what David does in verse 13. In the first few words of Psalm 14, or the verse 14. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord. Here we see David's focus shift from his enemies back to the Lord. He looks at his enemies long enough to see them and then turns back to the one who can help him. Staring at the strength of his foe does him no good, But turning to the Lord, the one who both can and will subdue all evil will remind David of where his hope lies. It is easy for the Lord to both confront and subdue. In our own strength, we may do the first, but there is no guarantee of the second. If I see someone 6'5", 250 robbing a store, and I can can confront the man, but I stand little chance of, of stopping someone who's determined to go through me. Only the Lord can do both every time. Only he is good enough to confront all evil, and only he is strong enough to overcome it without fail. The Lord can overcome evil in two ways. Either he can finally destroy it, or he can convert the wicked one. He can give them a new heart and open their eyes to their sin, to their need of a Savior, as he so graciously did with us. But if the Lord does not convert the hearts of the wicked, their destruction is sure, even when it does not look like it. The men David asked to be delivered from look like they are winning. It seems as though they have it all. The rest of verse 14 says, From men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied with their children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. These wicked men seem to get everything they could ever want. They have lots of children and lots of wealth to leave them, and they are very satisfied. The only problem is, and it is a problem they cannot see, is that this is all they're getting. Their portion is in this life, and this is the best it will ever be for them. The judgment of God is coming so very quickly. They may not see it now, but they will see it in the end. Our lives are so short in the grand scope of history. We are reminded over and over in God's word that all flesh is grass, here today and gone tomorrow. All our lives are a vapor and will be gone before we know it. These wicked men are like the unnamed rich man in Jesus' story about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. Lazarus lay dying outside the rich man's gate while inside the rich man could have everything he ever wished for. 
when they both died, the rich man cries out to Abraham from hell asking for relief. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and, and none may cross from there to us. It will be the same for all who persist in doing evil, of those who will not repent of their sin and come to Christ. <coughs> this life, this life is the best they will ever have. They're getting all the kindness God will ever show them right now. Do not be jealous of them. Do not look at those who do evil and still seem to prosper with envy. Do not covet their, their wealth or their influence or their power or their families. They're snowmen in May. They're doomed. It will not last. Jesus said again, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look to the kindness of the Lord in your life. Look to him who saved you from being just like the wicked ones. Look to him who is using these same wicked men to refine you, to sanctify you, to make you more like your Savior. Store up your treasure in heaven. These troubling times will end, and then you will be made whole. David knows this. Look to the last verse. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The wicked may have all they want, but we have what we really need. And that is the Lord himself. This verse should ground us in hope. It should cause our hearts to sing. It has more hope than we dare dream of. To behold the face of the Lord, to see the Lord face to face, that was the goal of all the Old Testament saints. It is what Moses asked for on the mountain, to see the glory of the Lord. But the Lord told him, no. In Exodus thirty-three twenty, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Yet here David says he will behold his face in righteousness. How? How can he, along with Job, look forward to seeing the Lord after their suffering? Job, in the midst of his suffering, said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my sin, my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. David is in the midst of a time of evil men looking to kill him. He's being crushed on all sides like an olive in a press. And what comes out of him is the oil of gladness. The pressure reveals David's heart. It shows us where his hope lies. And it lies in the Lord. The, the wicked can have all this world. What he wants is the Lord. To see the Lord. To be, to, and, and to see the Lord is to be forever blessed. Because when we awake, we who are in Christ, we shall see the Lord and be satisfied. Because God the Son took on flesh, we can see him. Because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. One even the most righteous of us could never live. David could not live this life. David was a man after God's own heart. He loved God and loved the word of God. And he was an adulterous murderer. 
It was not David's righteousness on his own that pleased the Lord. It was not because David would live a blameless life that he could pray a prayer like this. It was because of the one David pointed to. It was because of the perfect obedience in every way of Jesus who David trusted would come after him and who we trust came before us. That this prayer can be prayed and heard and answered by a perfect, holy, righteous God. It is a great privilege to be able to pray to God our Father in this way. It is way better than to be able to pick up a phone and call a dad who, though he may know a lot, and though he may care for us as, as well as any human can, cannot make all things right. A human father, even the best, will fail us. He will make mistakes and misjudgments, and, and he will do the wrong thing even, for, even with good intentions. But our Heavenly Father will not. All he does is good. And all that he gives to us is for our good. We can, in Christ, come right into his throne room with an upright heart and leave our troubles with him. We can approach the king of all the universe and know that not only that he he knows about us, but he cares deeply for us. He gave us to his son and he gave his son to us. There is no trouble we face that he cannot handle. There is no enemy so great that he cannot defeat with but a word. What is the worst thing our enemies can do to us? Kill us? That does not stop his love. For when we awake, we will be satisfied with his likeness. The blessing of Aaron will forever be upon us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to trust in you. Give us hearts like David, hearts that seek to live lives that walk in your paths. Give us hearts that take refuge in you. Give us a love for your word and through it by your spirit, change us. Cause us to delight in you and what you have given us. Help us to be satisfied in the great gift of your son. Protect our hearts from the envy of the wicked. Help us to see the emptiness of sin and and see where it leads and to turn from it. Protect us from those who would do us evil and cause the pressure that comes from them to drive us to you in prayer. Make us great in prayer and help us to think carefully and pray earnestly for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name.